0: All right, we are going to get started. Um, let, me, let me pray before we jump in, all right? Dear God, we thank you for this chance again to be here together. I'm thankful to be back um, with, with these guys and girls, and I pray this as we open up your word that your spirit would do the work in us, and uh, that... You would give us a fresh picture of the gospel tonight as we dig into this really beautiful text. Um, that you would give us new eyes to see and a new heart to love it and love you as a result of that. I ask you that in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. right, so we're jumping in. Um, Quick, we are in our uh, second part. We've actually spent, uh, you were in the same text last week, although we just had you study the first five verses. Anthony walked you through that. We decided, as we started looking at this, that this text is so rich. Even though it all goes together, we kind of split it in half, and we're going to read it all together both weeks you read it last week, you read it again here um, because we want you to see that it flows together. But it is so rich, there's so much in it. We probably could have done four or five weeks on this, but um, we decided we're going to do two weeks on it. So, just to make sure that you're tracking with the flow of thought of what Paul has kind of started talking about in this. In this passage. Back in chapter 3, Paul started defending and explaining his ministry. You'll remember, we've talked about it several times, that there are these kind of new teachers that have come into Corinth and have started drawing some people to themselves. And these new teachers, these kind of super apostles, have called into question Paul's ministry because he doesn't seem all that glorious, because he doesn't seem all that fancy in his speaking because he doesn't seem all that impressive when you look at him and the kind of lifestyle that he lives. He's always getting beat up and he's he's not all that It doesn't sound, at least when he speaks there in Corinth, like a real smooth talker. And so there are people going, I don't know if this guy's legit. And so Paul starts um, defending his ministry here in 1 through 6. Now, some of these new teachers were bringing in letters of recommendations from churches from like the East or whatever, saying, you know that this guy's good because look, look, I got this letter from this church back home telling you how awesome I am. And what Paul says at the beginning of 3 is he says, listen, we don't need to do that with you. Because you yourselves are our letter of recommendation you can look at your life and see what it was before we came, and then see what it is now. That's a result of the Spirit's power. It's the Holy Spirit working in you, and that is our letter of recommendation. And that leads him into this idea where he's describing the difference between the Old and the New Covenant. And the big difference is the Spirit comes. says that the Old Covenant came in amazing glory, so much glory that when Moses went up to get it on Mount Sinai, he comes down and his face is shining, and the people can't even look at it. That's how glorious the old covenant was when he came. And and Paul says, but this new one is so much more glorious than that. It makes the old one pale in comparison. And he says that as we engage in this covenant and we get to see Jesus, that we're being transformed into his image daily as we take in his glory. And then he says, as he starts in or as he gets into verse seven of four, he says, It is so incredible that in order to keep you from getting mixed up about where the real beauty and power of it is, God sent it to you in a jar of clay. Namely, He says, me, my body, my team, this beat-up, ragtag group of preachers. The reason we don't come fancy, the reason we don't come looking glorious, the reason we don't come looking so impressive and living this... like living the high life and this, this kind of lifestyle that people would envy us because we don't want anybody to get confused about where the power of our life and the power of our message comes from. Um, it comes from the gospel. It comes from the work of the spirit at work through us. And he says, and so I, Paul says, I'm okay with the fact that I deliver it in a beat-up, worn-down body for, for two reasons. One, it highlights the gospel, but two, I've got a new body coming one day. And he says, one day I'm going to stand before Christ and be given a new body. But then that idea is what leads him into our thing before. When he starts talking about standing before Christ to give an account of all that he's done, it leads him into chapter 5, verse 11, where he says, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord... We persuade others, but what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God, and if we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this that one has died for all, and therefore all have died, and he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. So, what Paul says is the reason we do our ministry in the manner that we do is because we are controlled and compelled and constrained by the love of Jesus. His love poured into us, and this recognition that He died in order that we would not live for ourselves but for Him, that's what causes us to live in the way that we do. And then he goes on, and here's where we are today. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard Him thus no longer. Working together with Him then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For He says, In a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. There is a lot to unpack in there, so we're diving right in. Go back to verse 16. From now on, therefore... We regard no one according to the flesh. Okay, so in light of the fact that we believe Jesus died to, to give us this different kind of life in which we live for him, not for others. He says, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Um, that word flesh, it's sarx in the Greek. I just remembered that because um, sarks eat flesh. Sharks eat flesh. That's how I remember that. So means flesh, all right? Um, and, and it is a kind of tricky word when Paul uses it. I read a thing the other day that said the NIV, I think the old version, I'm sure the new one too, has 48 different English words that uses to translate this word flesh. Because there can be so much meaning behind what it is, given, depending on what the context is as to what Paul is trying to get at. What he's getting at here is a worldly way of seeing things, a worldly perspective. So when he says, we no longer regard anyone according to the flesh, he's saying, we do not evaluate people based on the usual shallow criteria of the world. Like these new teachers coming into town who look at outward appearances, who look at status, who look at how much money you got or what you're making or what you're doing and they go, that's how you know someone's impressive. And Paul says, no, 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 I don't do that anymore. As a matter of fact, he says, that runs counter to what it means to be a Christian because he died not so that I would live for myself, for the advancement of myself, to move myself up and so you could look and be impressed. He died so I wouldn't do that. So I would instead live for him. He says, we don't regard people uh, according to the flesh. He said, we used to do that with Jesus, which what, what he means is, I used to look at Jesus and I saw this rejected teacher, this rejected, crucified heretic, And that's all I could see because I knew this, that he got punished and that the Jewish leaders didn't like him. But now I regard him thus no longer. That whole bright light knocking me on my butt on Damascus Road kind of changed things a little bit. And and so he says, I don't regard Jesus like that. I see him differently now. And that's what we do with all people. We'll talk a little bit more about what that may look like later. Then we come to this huge verse in verse 17. Therefore... If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And this explains a little bit of verse 16. Here's why we don't regard anyone according to the flesh. Because that's the old way of doing things. And and if anyone is in Christ, actually it doesn't actually say in the Greek, if anyone is in Christ, he is or she is. All it says in the Greek is, if anyone is in Christ, new creation. That's it. If anyone is in Christ, new creation, the old things have gone and the new things are coming. Paul says that a new reality is in place for those who are now in Jesus, including they themselves. They have been changed and they are starting to see that a new reality is taking over the world. So why would I use the old way of evaluating people? Um, something brand new is taking place in me and as I um, observe in the world around it. But what he's talking about here, what he's getting at with this this new creation that leads to a new different kind of life is what we call the gospel-centered life. Here at the table and what we long for you maybe more than any of the other five things what we want for you here is a gospel centered life which we define as letting Jesus' work and identity shape every area of your life Paul says that because of what he has done my whole perspective on everything I see and the way I live my life is shaped and changed how do you get a gospel centered life? Well, it's actually in the name there you get a gospel centered life by continually coming back to the gospel and centering yourselves around them. So good news for you. That's exactly what this text is about to do for us. And so we get to spend some time looking at that um, over the, the next 20 minutes. Uh, verse 18. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Um, Paul uses this word several times in those couple verses that we just saw and we'll see it come up a couple more times, but that is this idea of reconciling or reconciliation. Um, He's the only one in the New Testament who uses it to describe what God does for us in Jesus, what God does in the Gospel, but he uses it a number of times. He likes this word. He likes this idea that God is reconciling us to himself. Um, and, And what's big about this word, reconciliation, is that it implies two things. It implies two key things about our relationship with God. The first is this, that we were made to be in a relationship with Him. The idea of reconciling means you are bringing back together two things that belong together in the first place. A relationship that was there before but has since been broken. And that is what humanity was to God at first. That's humanity first was established in a relationship with God, made in His image, made to know Him and be connected to Him. And, and that's what we were designed for. That is why our, our life and our purpose and our joy and our meaning are all found in knowing Him. And that is why I believe there is an ache and a longing at the root of everybody's heart, whether they're able to admit it to themselves or not. This longing for something more, for something greater, where they keep searching and searching for something that will satisfy, because separated from God, we cannot find it. And so they'll spend their entire lives looking for it. Reconciliation tells us that we were made to be in relationship with Him. Here's the second thing that it tells us, though. um, That... Uh, human beings are not neutral apart from God. We are hostile to Him. We're against Him. The ideal of reconciliation means that you have two parties that stand at odds against one another. That, that, that are not They're not two different kind of strangers who don't know each other. They're two people who are against one another and they need to be brought back together and to come together. So imagine this with me for a moment. Um, You graduate graduate college, you get all done, you get your degree, and then you move to Oklahoma City um, to try and look for a job. Economy's bad, and so it's hard to find one, Um, but you figure in Oklahoma City, I got a better chance there than anywhere else. There's got to be more jobs there. So you move to Oklahoma City, you're not able to find anything full-time. All you can get is this part-time job, and and the truth is that paycheck is not going to cover rent um, or mortgage anywhere in the city. And so you 're struggling to figure out where you 're going to live and what you 're going to do, but you get this friend this this really good friend who moved to Oklahoma City several years before you and and you 've been pretty connected to this person and and he decides he tells you that he 's going to let you live in this rental house that he has for dirt cheap, um, like super low rent, something you can afford and, and you don 't know this for sure, but you imagine at the rate he 's charging you that it 's probably actually costing him like he probably doesn 't even cover the cost of the mortgage. And so you're so grateful, and you've got a home to live in there while you're working a your job, and you move into this house, and you begin to live there for a little while, and you end up there for a few months, and a few months turns into a few years, and you get pretty comfortable there. By, by now, you've got a good job, and you're able to pay for stuff, but you've got, this, you've got this awesome house that you've been living into, and slowly but surely, you become so comfortable in it. It feels so much like home that, that you don't know exactly when. It's not like there was any specific point in time, but but you just start to kind of treat it and see it as yours. And, and you kind of stop hanging out with this guy. You, you haven't really been hanging out with him for months, maybe almost a year now. You haven't seen him or done anything around him. And, and, and you don't mean to. It's not like you make this intentional decision. It's almost like somewhere in your head, it just gets in there that this is my home. I mean, I I'm the one who's been living here for years. I'm the one who I'm the one who's been doing like little fix it up stuff and, and upkeep on the house. I've been mowing the lawn and all those things. And somewhere in your home it gets into your mind that this is your home. This is your house. You own it. And you decide, like you start looking around, and you decide I don't really like it the way it is. I think I want to do something new to it. And you decide you're going to start remodeling it. So you go get a sledgehammer. You start doing some demo work in the home. But the problem is you don't really know what you're doing at all. You just start swinging at stuff. And at one point you happen to take out a load-bearing wall, right? And so now the, the roof is starting to sink in a little bit because you took out something really important. And, and at, you know, upstairs you were swinging away in one of the bathrooms and you actually accidentally busted a pipe. And so now the downstairs is flooded and, and it's starting to get pretty crappy. But, but, but hey, it's your home. You're working on it. It's, it's a work in progress. You're going to get it put together. And then one day, you run into a mutual friend, somebody who knows you and the guy who's been kind enough to rent this home to you. And what that mutual friend tells you is, hey, your friend, dude, so, and so like, he's pretty ticked at you. He, dude, listen, last time I talked to him, he was not happy with you. He is angry with you. And because you forgot something really important, that that house you live in is his, forced, your first reaction is to be indignant about that. What Like, what, what are you talking about? What's, what's his problem? I didn't do anything to that dude. I, I, I haven't even seen that guy in like nine months. How in the world could I, how, what could I have done to him? I've been, I just live my life. That's all I've been doing is just living my life and he lives his. Listen, I, I stay out of his way. He stays out of mine. So why in the world is that dude going to be ticked at me? What has he got to be mad at me about? That picture right there, I think, is a really good picture of what most of the world believes in their relationship with God. When someone is told that God is not happy with the way that they have lived their life, when someone is told that they are walking in sin, when someone is told um, that one day they will face judgment for the kind of life they are living, a lot of people, their first reaction is, like, how close-minded is that? What kind of garbage is that? Why would God be mad at me? Like I've never done anything to him. I I live my life. And and they want to treat God kind of like he's this like stranger slash acquaintance that they wave to every now and then say hi to, but there's not really any connection. And and, and they can't fathom in their life, listen, dude, I'm a good person. I I, I live a good life. I'm kind to others. Why in the world would God want to judge me or be angry at me? And what they've forgotten is that that thing that they're living in, the life that they've been given, isn't actually theirs. That It belongs to somebody else, and they have chosen to pretend like this thing that belongs to God, their life, actually belongs to them. And they've chosen to claim something that is God for themselves and chose to decide to kind of remodel it and shape it in the way that they want to shape it. They're not very good at it, but they've chosen to shape it in the way they want to shape it. when you do something like that, when you try and steal somebody else's stuff and then you start damaging it, you've made an enemy out of that person. You're not neutral to them. They're not just an acquaintance that, hey, as long as I don't really disrupt stuff too much and he doesn't disrupt stuff, then we're good, right? No, No, you're an enemy. <clears throat> And in fact, that's the exact word that Paul often uses when he starts talking about the idea of reconciliation, that separated from God, you are his enemy that what you chose to do in the way you lived your life when you decided to sever yourself from him through your sin is you decided to claim something that was his for your own and you made it yours. And so you decided to sin against him in that and you have separated yourself. And so in Romans 5, when Paul talks about reconciliation talk, he says that we are, we were his enemies before that. And then in Colossians 1, Colossians or 1.21 says this, Once... You were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. The Bible says that you are enemies. And listen, an enemy does not need to clean their act up to be okay. If we're enemies of God, we don't need to be better people. We don't need to get our crap together to be okay. We need to be reconciled back to the one we've made an enemy out of. That's what we need. And and Paul says that's what God comes to do and that's what Paul's role is. Look at verse 20. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making His appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So Paul says, this is my job. I am like an ambassador. And you know what an ambassador is. An ambassador is someone who goes to one country but Where he goes, he is there on behalf of his home country. He represents the king in this land wherever he goes. And Paul says, what I am doing is I am going out to the world as an ambassador for Christ. As though God himself is making his appeal through me... To you, saying, Be reconciled to me, come back to me. Paul says, That is what my job is, that I I plead with you to be reconciled to God. That is what you need. But that's complicated. This idea of being reconciled to God is no simple thing. It gets it gets tricky. So one day you're sitting in this house this house that you've been living in and that you've kind of convinced yourself was yours, you hear a car pull up and you look out into the front yard, you look out through the front window and you see that friend, that old friend of yours, walking up the driveway. He's got a piece of paper in his hand. And the moment you figure out what that is, an eviction notice, your stomach kind of just drops, your heart starts to sink. But then then your, bud, your blood starts to just boil inside of you. The nerve of this dude to show up at my house and try to kick me out of it. To, to come up here and pretend that what is mine is his. That he's going to come and try and displace me from this place. And sure enough, he comes and he knocks on the door and you open it up. And he holds up the paper and it's exactly what you thought it was, an eviction notice. And he says, listen, this is my house. You... You haven't paid rent on this thing in years, and you've torn it up. And so you have until tomorrow to be out of this house. And in fact, I, like I'm forced to press charges for destruction of property, to come in and destroy my stuff that is mine. I'm gonna have to press charges against you for that. And you slam the door, and he starts walking down the driveway, and you're furious. <laughs> And you're so angry and you're ready to fight, but you bit your tongue and you tried not to talk back. And then, and then you glance out that front window again to see him walk and get into his car. And all of a sudden, this, this flashback comes into your mind. You remember it. The day that he handed you the keys and walked out to his car and got in the car, you, you see it all. And, and slowly but surely, you start to remember, holy crap, this isn't, this isn't my house this is his house. And, and I've been... I thought it was mine. I've been treating it like it was mine. And you start to look around and it's in shambles. It's just completely destroyed. And you got no idea what you're going to do and you start to regret all the things you've thought about him and some of the things you've said towards him and you regret all the stuff that he's done and you put it in your mind that i'm going to make this right i'm going to make this right and so you spend like all day and all night you don't even sleep trying to work on the house fix it up and and when you're not working you're sitting there and you're trying to come up with a plan for how you're going to pay all this money back for what you're going to be able to do because you owe him like years worth of rent and so you come up with it and the next morning he comes and he walks up to the door you go to the door to meet him and the first thing you say when the door is open is I'm sorry I remembered, I remembered this wasn't mine this was yours this whole time and, and listen I'm, I'm going to pay you back I promise I'm going to pay you back and all of this in here I'm going to fix it all up and he just starts laughing because you can't because you can't fix all that and this is the issue with reconciliation is God can't just wave a magic wand and say it's okay and you're done. Just like you can't wave a magic wand and, and the rent money's finally just magically there and the house is just fixed all around you and everything's right. It doesn't work like that. You destroyed something and it's still destroyed. And that's the truth about our relationship with God. He cannot. Simply just say, okay, and just kind of wave a magic wand and take it all away. No, there's been a severance. There's been a destruction that takes place to the property. And you can't just sweep those things away. And so your friend starts to laugh. And at first you're angry. But he's mocking you in the middle of this. But then you realize it's not an angry laugh. It's not a mocking laugh. He just laughs and he looks around and says, dude, you can't fix this. Look what you've done already. You, can't, you don't have the ability to fix this. That's why I've already paid a contractor, and he's on his way right now to fix it for you. And you, listen, I know you don't have enough money to ever pay me back. You'll never make enough money. And I know this, that you went into debt trying to fix this thing, that you put all your money into trying to remodel this, and you're like thousands in debt that you don't have a shot at it. And so I'm canceling all your debt. You don't have to pay me rent. All I want is you. All I want is this friendship, and I'm I'm paying for the debt. I'm paying for the fixing. I'm going to make everything right. It will be done at my cost, not yours. I'm just here for you, to make you, to bring you back to me so that we might be reconciled again. This is what the gospel tells us, that God, because of his holiness, cannot and will not simply sweep your sin under the rug when you are against him can't do that. It doesn't work that way. A holy and righteous God can't just pretend that sin doesn't exist. He has to punish it. And that's what makes verse 21 one of the most beautiful verses in the Bible. When Paul says this, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You don't just magically wipe everything away. Someone has to pay the cost for it. And so God himself says, I know you can't. You didn't have the ability. But that's okay because I will. And so God sends his own son Jesus, and as Paul says, that he who had never sinned, who knew no sin, became it, became my sin on the cross and, and we became his reconciliation so that God could take my sin and punish it on Jesus so that he wouldn't have to punish it in me. Because if he punishes it in me, I don't make it through that. I don't last that kind of punishment. I don't survive that. But Jesus can take it and then come back. And so he punishes it in Jesus in what theologians call the great exchange. The great exchange. Jesus takes all my sin and I get all his righteousness. So that God doesn't have to sweep anything under the rug. He can, 1 John says this, that when we confess our sin to Him, He is faithful and just to forgive us. That is, God is actually just when He forgives you. Why? Because you're righteous in Jesus. Because He has placed a new level of righteousness on you. And and this idea, actually, that Jesus came and took my sin on Him so that God could pay for it, is actually becoming somewhat unpopular in certain Christian circles. There are a lot of people who hear that and they think that is so backwards. That is so archaic. That is so old to, to, to believe that God has to have some sort of blood sacrifice for Him to be able to forgive us. No, no, no. God is, God is not like that. God is too nice. God is not that angry. He could just forgive us. He, he can just be nice. He doesn't need like some sort of blood offering. That sounds like you're some like caveman or something back there. But the Bible is clear on this. That this is exactly what God does because of His holiness that needs to be satisfied, because of His righteousness. That it is through that death we call substitutionary atonement. That Jesus atones for my sin as my substitute. That verse I I mentioned to you earlier, Colossians 1.21, once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. Verse 22 says this though, but now He has reconciled you, not... Out of the just, you know, sweetness of his heart, he has reconciled you not because he just forgets things and just says, "Ah, forgive and forget." He has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death. Mm -hmm. That in the dying of Jesus, we are reconciled back to him. And this is, of course, not just um, necessary, it is biblical. In fact, it was predicted 700 years earlier when Isaiah said in 53, um, Isaiah 53, verses 4 through 6, that he will be pierced for our transgressions. He will be wounded for our iniquities. And the punishment that will bring you and I peace and reconciliation is laid upon Jesus. Um, that, That God has laid on him, it says, the iniquities of us all. Um, now, here's the thing real quick. Your friend pays for everything, fixes up the house, cancels all, your, all the debt that you had for makes everything right and new. But does that mean then that you can go right back and start to treat the house like it's your own again? The answer is no. No, no, no. The grace and the forgiveness that your friend gave you to reconcile you is not a license for you to go on continuing to live as though that house belongs to you. It doesn't mean that you can continue to live however you want to live and do whatever you want to do with that. No, no. Paul said it. He died so you would not live for yourself, but for him who died for you. And that's what Paul says to him in, uh, to these guys in 6 verses 1 through 2. Working together with him then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. First of all, that first little line I love, I mentioned to it last week, Paul says, working together with him. Paul says, it's not on me to come up and try and convince you. It's, that doesn't all rest on my shoulders. It's not me who's got to win you all over. I get to do this in cooperation with the sovereign God with the Holy Spirit. And I love that idea that when you talk to your friends about Jesus who do not know him, when you talk to family members, that that does not all rest on your shoulders to have all the right arguments, to have everything in line and perfectly said, that you do that in cooperation with Jesus. I love that idea. But here's what Paul gets at. He says, those of you who are choosing to walk away from me and my gospel, you are in danger of receiving God's grace in vain because he came in and he canceled your debt and he's still letting you live in the house, but you don't get the chance to just choose like that's yours again to live as though that's yours and to destroy it in whatever way you want. You're in danger of receiving it in vain. And then he quotes from Isaiah 49, 6. In a favorable time, I listened to you. And in a day of salvation, I listened, or a day of salvation, I have helped you. In Isaiah 49, it, it talks about how God is pleading through the prophet Isaiah for his people to return and be delivered to him in the day of salvation. And Paul says that time that Isaiah prophesied about is right now. The day of salvation is when Jesus came and when I showed up on your doorstep and started proclaiming it to you. And he says, do not walk away from that. Do not step away um, from the salvation that God has offered to you. Um, Do not receive that grace in vain. Now, our lives belong to him. And we are now meant to live those things for him. The house is still his. So the question is like, What does it look like for us to do that? And how do we live this kind of new creation life that He has given to us? We'll talk a little bit about that in the next couple minutes. But for now, we'll take a break.
1: Got it, got it. Alright, guys. So we've got something new we want to start doing. But before that, I've got a couple quick announcements. Actually, I've just got one. So this... Friday, uh, we want to have a two-step night here at the table, and I know some of you guys are, like, pumped to do that, and I know some of you guys are, like, I hate that with all my being, and I know some of you guys are, like, I didn't even know we danced. Do we dance around here? We do dance. Um, 17th? Okay, I might be, oh, sorry, yes, next Friday, I skipped this Friday. Lori saved my life right there. Um... Next Friday. And so I just want to say, we are going to do that. It's been the first time we've done that in a while. And if you are scared to two-step, we are going to actually show you. We're going to have a couple people come and show you how to do it. He's scared, too. Um, and do not worry, because I am a worse dancer than you. But I just do it publicly. So don't don't feel bad. I'll be worse. Will you be my dance partner? I will dance with everyone. Okay? Um, so, yeah. Okay. So... There's something that uh, the leaders really wanted to start doing, and as you notice, we have those five things on the wall. Um, we haven't came up with a name with them yet. I want to call them uh, legs, like with the legs of the table, the five legs of the table, a five-legged table. But it's not catching on. So help me out there. But what we want to do is we we want to uh, we want to we want to have some time and take one of our people and. That we just see that really, really models this. That we uh, we see either models it really well or just has grown very well in it. Um, and I, I have Eric here tonight. We're talking about contributor mentality. Oh look at God. And oh. so uh, hey. b- before before we uh, before we start this interview, I just want to say this is not this is not a let's come talk about how good Eric is. That is the last thing I want to do mm, in public. This is the last thing I want. And I know he doesn't do, but I don't I don't want to talk about him good either. Um, but this is a time where we, we acknowledge, we have seen God working in you in this, and we just want to, we want to hear what your motivations are, and we want you to just, to share and help us, like, help us all grow, um, to these legs of the table, uh, to these parts of the Christian walk together. So, I'm just going to beat, beat that dead horse. So, um, Eric, you don't have to talk about yourself, I, I, just, just tell about you, Eric, from coming to college, he, whenever anyone has asked him to help out or has, not, not not just asked him, said like, hey, I've got this and he done or just on Facebook or on um, a crowd. Eric's always the first one to say, I'll do it. Like, I don't, I don't care what's done. Like, like almost to the point of like, Eric does it all the time. You actually, you have a spiritual gift. You call it your spiritual gift, right? Oh, yeah. What, what is
2: that? I, uh, I pick things up and set them down.
1: <laughs> the spiritual gift of heavy lifting. Um, and we just, we just wanted to ask you, what, uh, in coming to college and in serving the church, what has been your motivations? Um, like what, what is, how did you get started and what have you been serving with?
2: Okay. Um, gosh, I hate being in front of people. Um. My, so, like, my motivation, actually, I had, so I had some thoughts about this beforehand, but Drew's, like, rent house picture was just awesome, so I'm going to roll with that. Um, My motivation for, like, for serving, for, like, giving of myself for somebody else is that, like, I remember whose house it is. Um, Yeah, so... Like, remembering the gospel, remembering who I am in Christ, and that I have been bought by Him, means that I'm His. It means that I'm His slave. And so, like, my time is not mine. Uh, like, my money's not mine. My truck's not mine, because that gets used a lot. <laughs> Praise God. Um, yeah, like, like I am not my own, and so whatever, like like, need arises... I have the capability to meet that to the benefit of my family and to the glory of God. So that's that's my motivation.
1: Yeah. Um. So you've you've served in a lot of areas. We joke about uh, just you're a heavy lifter. Um, although it is weird how much peop- how many people need stuff moved in the church. Um, but you've served in child's care. You've served. Uh, you've led groups of college students. Um, you've served at uh, Men's, Men's Encounter, I believe, too. Um, but where have you seen God move in your service? Where have you seen God move through your serving? Um, and where have you seen God move in in your heart as you as you serve? So where
2: Where have I seen God move uh, through me? Um, I forget who it was. I'm not even sure I know her or if that, like, or if she goes, I'm sure, I think she goes to Sunnybrook, but there was this lady, like, a few semesters ago who had this shed that she needed, like, moved off her property, and somehow she got connected with probably Paul Weiss, who's, like, got me in his back pocket just for, like, doing stuff now. It's awesome. Um, and he says, he asked me, like, hey, can you, like, you think you could come take care of this? And so yeah, spent like a like a day and a half or so, just like I don't even it was some random house in Stillwater, like demoing this shed um, and hauling it off. And like afterwards, like I never saw the lady, I like I don't even know who she is, but she uh, she told Paul like she was just so thankful and like her um, I don't know her love for the church. I, 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 I hope her love for God was the kind of renewed out of that. Um, Albuquerque. Little plug, spring break, Albuquerque. See you guys there. I hope he'll see you there. I hope I can see you there. <laughs> um, yeah, that, like, getting to go be the hands and feet of a church of, like, a fellow or another pocket of our family uh, is always awesome. And getting to go work through, is a New City Church out in Albuquerque? We get to do a lot of, like, kind of stuff they wouldn't be able to do in a very short amount of time and do a lot of it. And so getting to see the families just, like, rejoice at us being a new city, being able to serve them through us yeah. is awesome. That's how I see God working through it. And yeah. in you. In me, like, the more I serve the, this whole, like, these 5 five-legged table thing— I like to call them the five pillars, but that's, like, a little too Islamic. (laughs) We like to remain distinctive. Um, Our five-legged table here, like, the more you do these, the more I do these, uh, the more natural it becomes. Like, the more I have, like, the more I commit to community, the more I connect to older believers, the more I have a life in Christ and it's gospel-centered, the more I contribute, like... The easier it is The more joyous it is Just to like To be in Christ This is a uh, Shoot I think it's John 13 that, it mm. No I forget it. It's okay. um, Where Jesus Tell him Talking to his disciples I know it's in his prayer Saying like that That My joy may be in them And their joy may be complete uh, Like The more that's a reality
1: It's awesome Yeah Cool man Um so, last question um, for people like like me, um, average average guys that might be might might be more selfish with the time or uh, um, or whatever, or just pretend that I'm I'm busy when I'm really not. Um, what what would be your advice to us and all the and your time in college and your serving in the church? What would what would you say? What would you say to to us or to at least me? <laughs>
2: Well, to you, say, get over yourself. <laughs> You're not your own. Okay, to these um,
3: people then. To, to, like,
2: average college student looking for, like, a way to serve or where to serve, um, like, change your mind as far as the church goes. Um, like, the church is your family. What is said about you in Scripture is more real. Than any opinion you may have, than any opinion your parents may have or your friends, like scriptures are authority, and so it calls us a family, and so like like buy into the church. If you got like if you got a spare weekend, figure out what's going on in the church. Um, at Sunnybrook, those of you that go there, we have this ministry called the Place, and it's an acronym that stands for something, but I forget what it is. It's kind of like. It's kind of like an in-depth like personality test, but it's to like the point of it is to develop or like figure out like what are your spiritual gifts based on like passions God has revealed in you, um, like your own personality yourself. Like if you think you love working with kids, but in reality you are like terrible at working <laughs> with kids, so that's a passion and not a gift. Um, like it doing the place assessment really like walks through that and you walk through with other adults and ministers um and they help you kind of figure out like hey here's what you're good at yeah. and like i can see the spirit working in you in this so like let's find a way to serve in this okay so like do it if you're at sunnybrook do that if you're not at sunnybrook uh maybe your church has something like that maybe they don't like seek out the elders and seek out the ministers and just ask like where you can serve where's where there's a need and like if you don't have the spiritual gift of picking things up and setting them down like ask them for like hey what can i do i mean if you really need something moved i'll do my best <laughs> but like yeah like come at it with i don't know i don't know maybe with a with a goal in mind
1: already yeah. well, cool man um thank you um i just like Thank you for talking about how it increases your joy, um, and how just you get to serve your family. Um, we really like when looking to you, like you really do model this well. You like when it came to this, it was kind of like, who do we get, Eric? Let's Eric. Is, we should have Eric talk about what it, what it looks like to serve. Um, and really, when when we do this, it is not. Like, look how cool Eric is. I please promise you, that is don't. not my goal, ever. <laughs> You're so cool. Um, but, if anything, it is, as a group, let us spur each other on to good deeds. And, in this case, imitate Eric as he seeks to imitate Christ. So, thank you, Eric. Good
3: work. <laughs> um, so, I want to talk tonight... About what I see Paul doing in this text, and it really comes from my Bible. Where is it? Let's right here. It comes from about. It comes from my Bible specifically, not yours. But it's uh, chapter five, verse fifteen. It's it's a Paul. It's the verse we've been referencing. Paul makes this amazing statement that I think we need to memorize. Um. Drew's already mentioned it, that, but that, that those who live um, might no longer live for themselves, but for Him. No longer live for themselves, but for Him. And so, I want to talk a little bit about this idea of living for Jesus versus living for blank. And I want to explain the blank, because I, I think literally the blank can be anything, could be anything. I mean, it's it, there. Really, is it's it's either it's either self or um, it's you know fame, which is self, or you know, or it could, it could even be others. Um, it could be it could be something noble, and I, and I and I I actually believe no matter what you put in that blank, that ultimately it comes back to you. That ultimately it comes back to me, like it's either I have two options: to to live for Jesus or to live for me. And so here's what I mean by that, because um, I, I think I think sometimes you know there, there could be there could be a lot of responses to that in this room. Some could could I, I doubt very many in here, but some could actually say, you know. Of course I live for me. Who else is gonna live for me? I have to live for me. No one else is gonna do it. So I have to live for me. I have to look out for me. And I get I get that. You know, at some level that's true. I mean you gotta take care of your, your business and all that stuff. Um But I think some, some might say that kind of unapologetically because they don't have a a framework of Jesus and what God would want. So yeah, sure, they may say that. I doubt there's very many in this room that would say that. Um, I think some in this room might say, "No, I, I live for Jesus." But, but like all of us, if if we were to really kind of peer in and and look at like your life and look at what what you get most excited about and look at what really drives you, um, you know, I think we might see other things. I think we might see you living for significance or for or comfort or pleasure or control or you know recognition or you know whatever there might be things that like okay yeah i know you do and it's you know it's it's partly true in your life but there's also this other thing you live for and then others might might say you know no i i i expect i, I see this in families a lot um it's really easy once you to have once you have kids to to just go i live for my kids like i ha like i do, everything i do is centered around my kids um some of you might have kind of grown up in a home like that where your parents just your their life and your your family's life revolved around you and your schedule and your 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 siblings schedules and I get that um, sad but true there's a lot of marriages that that don't go that well because the parents just put their kids at the center um, it's sad uh, but those of you who have Parents who made, who made um, th- their their marriage number one, like you know, and chose not to make you number one, actually, know you probably have a, a greater respect for or proud of the fact that that happens. Like that, that's a good thing, and so it's it's interesting. But I would argue, even if it's your marriage, even if it's another person, even if it's no, it's someone else I live for. Ultimately. If if whatever you whatever you're living for, if whatever you receive from that, okay, let's say you're living for the most noble cause, and you receive any recognition or you receive any enjoyment for or you receive any um, uh, accolades or uh, you know pleasure from any joy from, if it just stops with you, then it's. Then it ultimately, no matter what it is, it's it comes back to you. And so I think living for Jesus, like when I live for anything other than Jesus, I'm ultimately living for me. So you could even put, you know, you could even put your own picture in this in this box, right? You could I mean Alec could say. Like, this is, this is Alex's, I, I picked his best picture on Facebook, um, this is the best one I can find, but anyway, so, like, Alex, you know, Alec could say, you know, I, for Alec it's, either live for Jesus, or I live for Alec. right? I mean, Anthony says, <laughs> I either live for Jesus, or I live for Anthony, okay, I had to stop there, because I, I just, I, I could have kept going, I, anyway, so I stopped. Um. And so, ultimately, it's me. Like, so I want you to say I. I never do this. And in, in fact, whenever speakers say, "Hey, repeat after me," I usually don't. Um, um, but, but I'm gonna have you say, "The blank is me." Okay, ready? The blank is me. Yeah. The blank is me. The Blank is you. I mean, I, I really do believe that's true. Like, whatever, whatever you're living for, if it's not for Jesus. If it's not ultimately um, whatever you receive from it, you're not giving back to him. Then it's ultimately it ends. It ends with me. It ends with you. It's 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 kind of about us. Um, and and I I think Paul's I think Paul knows that and gets that. Um, he's getting at this. You know, there is a there is a lot of praise that can happen. There is a lot of enjoyment and satisfaction and recognition from from anything that we do or anything that we eat or any, anyone that we help. And, um, and I think all that's supposed to, as we receive it, it's supposed to be given right back to Him. I mean, I think that's how this works. And so I was trying to think of a, of a picture of how this works. And you guys have heard me talk about how I believe we're supposed to be like cups. And, and I believe that God is supposed to fill our cup. Okay? We need God to fill our cup and as He fills our cup, we start to overflow into others, and and we start to spill out into others. And so, whatever God's doing in us, kind of just overflows into others. I believe that's how I believe that's how we're supposed to be in a relationship with Him, as we represent Him and and reveal Him to others. As God pours in, He fills us up, and and we pour out into others. And and most of most of my life as a as a pastor, the first ten years especially. I was like an I was a cup with a hole in the bottom. I thought I thought the whole goal was for God to pour into me so that I could pour right into others. And I never allowed God to like fill me up and I was always on empty. So I was every time I was reading the Bible, I was trying to read the Bible to get something to pass on to somebody else. And and I, I struggled with this relationship until I realized, man, I'm not letting God I'm just not just spending time with God to spend time with God. I always had an agenda. God was a tool that I used to to, to minister to others. It was, it was a broken time of life. Anyway, and, and so I, I found this picture that I think kind of helps me um, because God is this never-ending picture that's pouring into this, this cup, bowl, that's overflowing into this basin. Okay? And I like, these, I like this picture because I picture those little rocks as like my family or some of you people or people that God's put in my life that that are you know as 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 I spend time with him and he he pours out into others through me. But what's interesting about this picture is you know how this works. You've probably seen one of these little fountains. Um it's not really it's not a magical pitcher. Like the water's not coming from just the air. Where is it coming from? Yeah, there's there's a there's a something in the bottom, a pump or something that's pumping it back into Now, here's where the analogy breaks down. God doesn't need us to somehow continue to pour into others. Okay, so don't go there. But think about this all the water returns to God, all of it returns back to Him. I think that's how this is supposed to work. Like, Like, as you pour out into others, it's just, it goes to others, but ultimately, whatever you receive by serving others and living for Jesus, it's just, God, that's yours. Like, you're the one who called me to. You're the one who gifted me to you're the one who gave me um, the ability or or the um you you placed the person I mean I couldn't have done what you did like I didn't do that you did that there's been several times where people have thanked me for things I don't even remember doing or saying in fact some of the more significant times when people have been impacted by my life I don't remember which I think is just a gift from God because i I, I truly can't take credit. I don't remember saying that to you. You did say that, I don't remember. Um, and I think that's just a gift from God. It's supposed to be received and given back. Think about eating the best meal you've ever eaten. if you've ever done a long, extended fast and then, and, then, and then you know, and then you get to eat again. It's like food is amazing. Um, I think that's supposed to be like, God, you're amazing if it just ends with food is amazing and i want more of it, it it we begin to worship it but if it's like god this is amazing you're amazing how could how did you put all these flavors together and create all this the, the aroma everything how did you how did you do that i mean i really do think that food can be something that ultimately goes back to god so living for jesus versus living for anything else ultimately Is about living for me, and I think Paul. Paul gives some unique ways, some some interesting ways. One of them is might be pretty obvious because I think it's, I think it should be pretty obvious. We'll get to that one, but the first one I think is just a unique way that he gives to live for Jesus in this text, and so I want to talk about it. Uh, So, two ways, two ways that I think Paul gives us to live for Jesus in this text. The first one is to, to live with a gospel regard for others and yourself. This one I didn't expect. I don't think I... I didn't see this one coming. The verse... The verse 16. um, I remember when I... When I read this and caught this for the first time, it just kind of caught me off guard. Because it... It just is an interesting statement. To not regard anyone into the... No longer regard people as the flesh... Or in the flesh. Regard no one, it says. Um... It's interesting that Paul says, I once regarded Christ in the flesh. So think about how Paul used to think about who Jesus was. He's a blasphemer. He needs to die. He's starting a revolt. I mean, starting a movement, and he's, he's claiming to be God, and he just got crucified on the cross. He's, of course he's not God. He's a blasphemer. These people that are following him, following him they're fools. They need to be imprisoned. They're causing damage. Like he... Paul saw all this just from the flesh. And then God opened his eyes. Jesus blinded him to open his eyes, I guess you could say, um, on the road to Damascus. I mean, all of a sudden, Paul sees him for who he is. This, this new spiritual reality he sees. And he, he no longer regards Christ in the flesh. And he, and he says that as an example of how we are to regard people. Everyone. And so um, this one is kind of interesting. So, what does it mean to, to regard, to not see people in the flesh anymore? To not treat people as they're, as, as, uh, they're fleshly? And I think it means several things. I think it means that we see, see both the dignity and depravity. Um, th- those are two tensions that we have to hold. With, with ourselves and with others, is um, our dignity and our depravity. God's made us in His image. We have dignity. We have value. We have worth. Everyone does. Every person has value, worth, and dignity. And then at the same time, the Bible's pretty clear that we are enemies of God, that we, we chose to rebel against Him, that we, 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 don't, we don't want to follow God. We ultimately don't want Him and he made a way for us too anyway but so this 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 dignity and the depravity and i think having a gospel regard for people is able to see that and recognize that and i think think that's grace and truth jesus it says in john 4, john 114 jesus came full of grace and truth i think i think love is the integration of of grace and truth like true love gospel centered love is is this integration of grace and truth. Without without grace it's not really love. Without truth it's not really love. And so Jesus comes in and he shows us how to love people in a way that's full of grace and truth. And and and, and we seek people with, with dignity. And also with not afraid to not afraid to see their depravity and not afraid to hold them accountable to their sin and not afraid to call it out. But also value and work and and, and, and um and, and value them, and, and see who, who they are in, in God, um, I think is huge. I think it also means we stop focusing on outward appearances and, and, and seek to see the inward reality. Um, not the outward appearance, but the inward reality. That's, that's what God says about David in 1 Samuel 7. He says that man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. That's what the Lord sees is the heart. And this past week, last week when Drew Rachel and I were away at a conference in Dallas, um, there's a man by the name of Eric Mason. Dr. Eric Mason, he's a pastor at a church in Philadelphia, downtown Philadelphia. And uh, he's a big black man. And he was hot. Um, He, (laughs) hot hot as in mad hot sorry not hot and the other kind of hot that's a totally different kind of hot he was he was, he was upset let's just put it that way that's that, that, if I could rewind that's the word I would use um, he was the, 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 it's the pause after hot that's what made it that's what made it confusing I, I understand I understand I get it I get it um, no he was upset and um, you know, he's not the first I've heard say this, and and I and I, and I think we needed to hear it. But he was he was speaking to a predominantly white audience, and this is a this is a man with a PhD in, in theology. Um, I, I have a ton of respect for him. He is he's a smart dude. Um, he speaks gospel truth. I love his ministry, but he called us out. And he basically said to the white brothers and sisters in our in our in the room, there's about 3,000, 3,500 of us, I think, mostly ministry leaders, pastors, and, and such. And he basically said, Your silence is agreement. Um, and I, you know, I needed to hear it. I he 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 threw out a lot of things, and honestly, a lot of things that, that I don't necessarily think that our ministry is guilty of, but I think sometimes we, when it comes to racial issues, when it comes to treating people based on the color of their skin, I think we just kind of assume, like, you guys all know that's wrong, right? Like, you all know that we shouldn't do that, right? And and I think we kind of sometimes assume those things without saying them. And, um, and so it really, it, you know, I was tempted to go, well, you know. Think about my context, but I, I quickly re- remembered a conversation I was having with a young lady here on campus. Th- this this girl, young woman, she she was we were talking to her about becoming a leader. This is a couple years ago. Her name is Arnisha. How many of you remember Arnisha? Yes. Okay, we love Arnisha. So we were talking to her about becoming a leader, and she's a proud black woman from Oklahoma City, and and we were asking her like how. You know, I've seen some things, I've seen her struggle a little bit in our ministry. I remember being on a mission trip, Drew and I remember this? Um, we were in Albuquerque, and uh, a girl we were in the van and a girl made a, a comment that was dumb and, and racial. I mean, she kind of quoted her what her dad used to say about neighborhoods like this and blah, blah blah, and it was, it was ignorant. And, and Arnisha just said, "That's wrong." And so someone kind of quickly came to her defense, like, well, you know, what she's saying is... And actually, the person that came to her defense was was a black student. And and so Arnisha said, yeah, I understand what you're saying, but what she said is wrong. Don't defend that. And she handled it great. And Drew and I were like, yes, because I don't know what... You know. <laughs> um, but so I, we asked her about that moment. And we asked her about, you know, if she struggled with that here at the table. And she said, you know... You know I don't, you know I don't experience it here at the table, but I have experienced it on campus. And she just des- described um, people driving by in trucks, usually, um, yelling racial slurs at her, calling her names. I, ju- I just like, okay, wait, on like college campus here, like I could see like old people, I could see, you know, grant my grandparents' generation be just being ignorant, but. Like college-age people, you're kidding me. I, I didn't believe it, and she's yeah, and she would describe several times being, you know, being yelled at and being called names and different. Things. I just, so, I mean, I don't understand it. Um, it. It's shallow. It's 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 ignorant. It's it's wrong. It's foolish at best. It's wrong. It's sinful to think. Someone to treat someone or to look at someone based on the color of their skin it's just it's idiotic i don't I don't understand it and, and Paul's calling us to treat people as not in the flesh like as as followers of Jesus we see people differently we see people the way god sees them that's that's what he's calling us to I also think this gives me an opportunity to talk about something else that 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 i I've felt and wanted to talk about, didn't know how, but I think God, is a, there's an opportunity here. This is a little dad moment, okay, so I'm going to act like a dad, I, I'm old enough to be most of all of your ages, you know, all of your dads, all of, wait, I'm old enough to be your dad, I'm old enough to be, I'm old enough to be, who knows, your grandpa, I don't know. Um, you guys, like, the, the freshman class is, is born the year I got married, so it's really weird. Um, but a dad moment here, you know, it's also not just color of the skin, but size and shape. Um, And so I have two daughters and I drive, um, my oldest daughter, she's now in high school. And so she's learned how to drive. So we drive into the parking lot and she pulls in and then I get out and come around. She goes into the school. But every, every morning I see just high schoolers walking across the parking lot. And, just the other morning i just was praying thinking about um how hard it may be how hard it must be especially for young women um to just struggle with how they look to look in the mirror and to struggle with how you look to 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 wish you wish you looked different to wish you had less of something or more of something and and um you know my daughters are, are getting into that age where they're you know starting to care more about the the way they look and you know. luckily my oldest she doesn't so as far as i can tell or see she doesn't have that she's not wrestling with that but i could see my middle daughter getting to a point where that becomes something she's stressed about or you know worried about or insecure about um just kind of based on her personality a little bit but I mean what Paul's saying is like not only do you regard no one else according to the flesh, but like yourself as well. Like you see yourself the way God sees you. And and like it's it when the outward appearance starts affecting your understanding of the inward reality, I think that's a problem. So I, I wanna call you to just knock it off. I wanna call you to stop it. Like, like it doesn't help. When when the external affects your understanding of what's internal. I think that's a problem. It should be the other way around. It should be recognition of what's internal that, that affects the external. And, and so, yes, I think there should be um, a, I'm, you know, this is the body God's given me and I'm going to do my best with it. Okay, yeah, I think that's good. I also think there's an obsession with wanting our bodies to look a certain way. That's just silly. Wanting, if, if you want to look other, something different than the way God made you, then you're, 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 what you're saying is to God, God, what you gave me is not good enough. I want something else. And this is wrong. It's just... I mean, just imagine sitting before God and saying, God, yeah, you were wrong in this. You gave me the wrong whatever. I just think that's a silly... That's, when you get into God's presence, that'll be the furthest thing from your mind. So let, let the truth about who you are in Christ like d- dictate how you f- how you view yourself and work from the inside out. And which is where Paul goes with this next in verse, verse 17 that we are new creations in Christ. This is a notice he says the first in verse 16 regard no one according to the flesh but in verse 17 is those who are in Christ. And that statement in Christ you need to. You need to just look up and read every every time that statement is mentioned in the New Testament, Paul uses it a ton. Um, but you are to re, like you are new in Christ. The old is gone, the new has come. And I just looked at the time, and we we got five minutes. And I am, I got. I'm gonna, I'm gonna have to fly. Um, but I just want to say this: being a new creation in Christ is a truth and not a feeling. Like you are new in Christ and it's true and it's not true because you may feel it's true today and and then in 2 weeks you don't feel like it is. But it's true because it's true. It's a, it's a truth not a feeling. Feelings come and go. Your you may feel you may have a spiritual high and that doesn't change when that spiritual high goes away. That truth doesn't change. Like, you're new in Christ, which means that you get to wake up tomorrow and go, if you are a follower of Jesus, you get to wake up tomorrow and go, okay, no matter what I did or thought or how I was yesterday, how I act yesterday, or last night, today I'm new. Like, I'm free to, to think the way I, I should in Christ. I'm free to act the way I should in Christ. I am new in Christ. And Ephesians four twenty two through twenty four says, put off the old, put on the new. And if you got if you got a visual that every morning, I had a friend that would every morning he would get up, and he would take off the old. He would literally picture in his mind taking off the old and putting on the new. And that was his morning ritual to remind him every single day, I'm a new creation in Christ, and I'm going to live like I'm a new creation in Christ. You are new. You are free from the bondage of sin. You are free to um, to rely on the Spirit's strength to help you make, help you think, right, and, and make right decisions. Um, you're new. You're free. Here's the second thing I want to talk about quickly: that we are as we're to live as ambassadors of reconciliation. We are, we are ambassadors of reconciliation. I looked up. Um, this word ambassador, and it's kind of an interesting word. I'll get to that. I want to. I want to skip. I don't want to skip over this, this little part here. But um, I, I said earlier that you know, living for Jesus, it it changes the way you think about it. And everything, everything you receive, you just give right back to Him. I think that it also changes the way you love people, because you no longer love people to help them feel better about themselves or to help them like like you. Think about the people that you love. Think about the people that you love. Think about the the way in which you love them and why you love them and what you hope happens when you love them. And I think the gospel changes that for us. I think it means, I believe it means that when I love someone, my hope is that they would grow to love God more as a result of my love, that they would desire and take steps and grow to love God more. And, and, and I think that's what it means to be a minister of reconciliation. That, that my, my being in relationship with you hopefully helps you to take steps closer and closer to God. Whether you remember me or not, doesn't matter. But that you grow to love God more. Because when they grow to love God more, they're going to love all the right things. They're going to love themselves better, they're going to love others better and we're called to be reconciled as we are reconciling God, we are called to be reconciled and then we go out and we we help reconcile others, and so here's some questions to ask um, for you to think about um, specifically how you're loving those who aren't reconciled with God Um, are you praying for them you praying for them to be reconciled with God. Um, have you talked to them about what holds them back from being reconciled with God? Have you asked that question? So what's, what's stopping you from giving your life to Jesus? You could ask anybody that question. I, I think they would have an answer. I don't believe in Jesus. I, don't, I think you Christians are crazy. I mean, I would assume they have an answer. But ask them. And then lastly, do you know that, that they're, sorry, do they know your concern for them? Here, like, I see you chasing after this. Here's my concern for you. I see you living for this, and here's my concern. So are you praying for them? Do you, have you talked to them about what holds them back from following Jesus, from being reconciled with God, and do they know that you're concerned for them, that you care and are concerned, and I think if you can say answer yes to all those questions, then I think you're the rest of just living in relationship with them, just being around them. If 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 not, then maybe you have some steps to take. Um, this idea of ambassador is interesting, but one of the things I, I don't want—I can't read all of it—but one of the things that really stuck out at me was the number one job of, a, of an ambassador is to. The number one concern of an ambassador is to always keep the best interest of their home nation. And that's a, that kind of surprised me because I expected them to say the number one concern is to, is to present the home nation and their policies and everything to the people in the right way. Like, like the people that they're living around, that that should be their number one concern. And an ambassador's job You think about an ambassador in China or in Japan or in wherever. Their number one concern is to carry out their home nations like their best interest. Even when it says, it said it in this, even when the the nation's best interest isn't their own personal best interest, they're to carry that out. I thought that was interesting. But this idea that, that an ambassador is simply a representative it 's the the highest um, ranking official in any other nation and it's it 's the the highest ranking official representing the president representing their home nation and their do- their job is to represent and that is clear throughout all of scripture, like from Adam to Noah to Abraham and on down the line um, that our job is is as followers of Jesus is to represent Him and to reveal Him to others and and to stay in a relationship with Him as we do that. So I want to read. Um, well, no, I'm not going to read all the time, but I just want, I want to conclude with this: that a life sold out to and surrendered to. Jesus, and that's key, a life sold out and surrendered to Jesus that is both representing and revealing Him to others as you stay in relationship with Him, I think it's the greatest life you can live. It's the greatest life you can live. Like To live for Jesus is a life of no regrets. It's it's a life of eternal rewards. It's a life of um, daily renewal. To live for anything else is, is at some point in your life there will be regrets, um, there won't be eternal fruit, and, and it can be exhausting to keep up. But, you know, back to this picture, a life live for Jesus is a life that is constantly full and overflowing into others. And so I, th- I think about you people as you're, you're planning out your life because it's a big time of your life to think about your future and your career and where you're going. And, and I, want you to, I want you to think through this because there's a lot of people that are going to be selling you a lot of different things to live for. And living for Jesus is the one thing that makes everything else make sense and keeps everything else in its right proper place and perspective. And I want to challenge you to live for Him the rest of your life. Let me pray. God, thank You for Your Word, how challenging it is, how cutting it is, how good it is, how it keeps us in line and, and recalibrated to You. So God, give us a vision for our life, how to live for You in a way that brings glory and honor to You. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. We have any food, <laughs> snacks, yeah. we do.